Good morning. The war in Ukraine is now into its second month. And perhaps the initial shock and disbelief has receded somewhat. Yet the war continues and intensifies and lives continue to be lost. Yesterday, Philip put this to Ukrainian MP Sviatoslav Yurash. We have spoken to journalists covering the conflict from within Ukraine who say that they fear now that the conflict is moving more to the steps, that it will be less filmable, it will be less easy to be covered by broadcast news in particular. Do you fear, does the Zelensky government have a strategy for the possibility that Ukraine might start to slip down the news and political agenda in the West? Well, the reality is the media has a choice to make here. They can either cover the attempt of the biggest nation on Earth to destroy the biggest nation in Europe and annex it, or they can try to pretend it's not happening. And I think uh, all those steps, basically, they still end up in, in a city, uh, in big industrial cities like Mariupol, but much bigger, like Zaporizhia, for example. And these cities and the attempts to take them will be costly to the Russians, say the least. And unfortunately, the imagery that you saw from around Kiev will continue coming in as we liberate more and more of our land. So as far as the horror for the world to witness, there will be no shortage of that. And it's for you to make a choice whether to cover that and tell the story or not. And I hope you make the right choice. Ukrainian MP Sviatoslav Yurash. And it is the city of Mariupol that has taken on huge symbolic and strategic significance. And while fighting at the steelworks there continues, President Vladimir Putin has claimed victory. However, given the extent of the bombing of the city and its devastated population, it is a hollow victory. On yesterday's Morning Ireland, Keane McCormick spoke to the city's deputy mayor, Sergei Orlov. For last um, 15 days, city is totally blocked and the Russian are hiding all all uh, war crimes all genocide cases in Mariupol because they are afraid of uh, behavior of international society after Bucha crimes and we understand that Mariupol is five or ten times more uh, cases or an accidents of war crimes and genocide that's why they are afraid and they are totally blocked the city and are hiding uh, all these uh, crimes. So they are collecting bodies on the street. They are taking off all these um, killed people. So they're hiding these crimes at the moment. So you're claiming that bodies that remained on the streets and any evidence of crimes by Russian troops are now being covered up. Yeah, they are hiding them. And we received some information that they use and mobile crematorium. They start to make uh, mass graves um, uh, far away from our city. There is a very bleak future for Mariupol now. You describe it as not existing anymore. Yeah, it's it's true. Is that what you feel? I lost everything. I lost uh, my flat. I lost uh, house of my my native house. My parents. My father died. Uh, I cannot find my brother. I don't know does he alive or not. So I'm waiting the retirement of my mother, and she's on the way to Ukraine. But my father died. What what could I feel after this war? And as we know, many people have fled the city. Safe for now, yes, but life utterly changed.
Here's international editor of Channel 4 News, Lindsay Hilson with Philip. Yesterday, I was in touch with a, a woman called Katerina, a single mother who I met very near the beginning of this war. She left Mariupol really on, I think, day one or day two. And she's in touch with uh, friends who, who've left more recently. And, you know, she's safe. Her son's safe. The family guinea pig is safe. But she said, how can I live when my past life has died and my future is uncertain? And I think that that is also it. They know that they can never go back to Mariupol because Mariupol has been destroyed. Their whole lives have been destroyed. And now they have the rest of their lives stretching out ahead of them in uncertainty and fear. And as we've heard, as the physical terrain of the war changes, Hilsom gave her view as to how the nature of the conflict might also change. And I think that what we're going to see now is a miserable, grinding war of attrition. The Russians are not going to be fighting in town so much anymore. They're going to be fighting on the steppe, on this huge, flat agricultural land of eastern Ukraine, where they grow the wheat and the sunflowers, which provide so much food for the world. But you know, are they going to be able to take their tanks across there? It's raining here. This is the muddy season. It's not very easy for for tanks. It's going to be a very different kind of warfare. There are trenches on both sides already, because, of course, they have been fighting here in some parts of the East since 2014. And that has been an utterly miserable war as well. And I think it's going to be a war where we don't see the lines moving quickly like we have in the last two months. What we're going to see is, you know, one side going forward a bit, then going back, the other side going forward a bit and then back. And much of it may be out of sight. I don't think we're going to see television pictures as we have in Kyiv and so on. And so then the question is, will the world continue to pay attention to what's happening in Ukraine? Because if the Russians are able to sustain a long-term war of attrition in eastern Ukraine. That is going to be utterly miserable for the people who live there. And that, I think, could have more effect on the morale of Ukrainians than any of these quick battles that we've seen elsewhere. Channel 4's Lindsay Hilsom in Ukraine with Philip. And earlier in the week, a by now familiar call from Ukraine for more arms. Here's former Ukrainian Defence Minister Andrei Zahertnuk. We know for a fact that we can win this war. The problem is that uh, we need more equipment, like weapons, uh, particularly long-range, like artillery. And that is something which we're asking our partners for a long time. And we are receiving it, but we're receiving it too slow and in uh, smaller quantities. And this is our greatest challenge right now, because if we have enough weapons, we can make Russia go away. And on Thursday, U.S. President Joe Biden pledged $800 million in military aid to Ukraine. On Drive Time, Sarah spoke to John Bolton, former National Security Advisor for President Trump and Ambassador to the UN for President George W. Bush. Some analysts are now predicting that there will be some sort of standoff between Ukraine and Russia in the east and in the Donbass region. Similar, I suppose, to what's been there since 2014, since the annexation of Crimea on on a smaller part of the territory. Um, Do you think that that's a likely outcome? And do you think that the West can stand by and allow that to happen this time? Well, I think Putin uh, has to have something that he can he can declare to be a victory and uh, and say it without breaking into laughter. And he's not there yet. Uh, he hasn't had a clear military victor, victory anywhere. But a substantial increase in the territory under Russian control 
uh, might be enough uh, for him to say that his actions were justified. So, so far, he's still not close, even in the East and the South, to what I think he wants. I do think that it's also important to understand that Russia has not really been driven out of uh, significant territories in the east or the south, and even in the north, where they have withdrawn completely, uh, their conclusion was that they would simply take more casualties than what it was worth. And I'm, well, the point I'm trying to make is that the territory that Russia takes contiguous to the boundary with Russia itself is hard territory for the Ukrainians to take back. I think military experts in the United States would say Ukraine's success to date has been because they've waged a kind of guerrilla warfare, and they're able to do that in urban areas. I think it's harder, once you get out into the agricultural areas of the country, for them to conduct that kind of operation. So mm -hmm. when people talk about Ukraine is winning the war at the moment, that's a mistake. Uh, it's Russia that continues to gain territory, territory that it wants, and the standoff that you mentioned would come if and when Putin says, okay, I've got as much as I think we can hold, we're going to stop here, but we're not giving anything up. And as to Putin's character and cabinet, Sarah put this to John Bolton, a man who does not hold back. We have heard suggestions from Western intelligence sources in the, in, in the last couple of weeks that President Putin is out of touch and that perhaps his advisers are afraid to tell him the truth, that he himself perhaps is uh, not quite right in terms of how he's viewing things. Uh, what do you make of all that? I think it's all total nonsense. Uh, I think I know Putin pretty well from having observed him over the years. I first met him in October of 2001, right after the 9-11 attacks. I met with him uh, many times since then. He's cold-blooded as the day is long. The, the notion that he has a screw loose is just not right, or that his advisors are afraid to tell him things. Look, in authoritarian governments, backbiting and turf fighting is just as common as in democratic governments. I think what we don't recognize is how intense uh, the feeling is, not just for Putin, but for many Russians, uh, to reclaim, in effect, Ukraine and Belarus while we're at it, uh, to the Rodinia, to Mother Russia. That's what they think. Uh, we, we may not understand that calculus, but that's why they're prepared to suffer the damage that they have. Uh, Putin, Putin had an expression, he told, mentioned it to me on several occasions after we'd discussed some issue, he'd say, well, you have your logic, we have ours, we'll see which one prevails. Mm. Uh, and this idea that somehow it's solely Putin's war and that he's, uh, he's not entirely in control of his own mind uh, is a, maybe a comforting uh, thought, but I think it's completely wrong. Well, that is dispiriting. John Bolton on Drive Time with Sarah. Back in a bit. Welcome back. What do you shout when you when you the meal is ready and you put it out there? You shout food away. Food away, is yeah. it? Food away. Right? Food away. Louise Kennedy, who joined Ray to talk about her novel, Trespasses and Swapping the Skillet for the typewriter. I just thought it was ridiculous. Like, what would I be doing? Because you, you, you'd been a chef for 30 years. Yeah, like running around kitchens, poking at steaks and shouting at people for <laughs> chips and stuff like that. I hadn't, um, like, I hadn't written anything. Like. She's on fire now, though. And with a short story collection already under her belt, Trespasses is her debut novel. It's set in a small town just outside Belfast in 1975. And it just so happens that Louise had spent some of her childhood in Hollywood in Northern Ireland, where her granny had a pub and her mother worked there on and off. 
So we were in Niger there all the time. It was just uh, down the road. And uh, in 1973, I think it was November 1973, um, somebody saw um, uh, a bomb. Um, well, the, I think at the back of a van or at the back of a car had been left open and there was a beer keg in it right. with wires sticking out of it. And they raised the alarm and it turned out there were 150 pounds of explosives in it. Mm. Um, but the place was evacuated and it was defused. But it was bombed again in 74 and it did detonate. Now, again, the place had been evacuated. But, um, so you were seven or thereabouts? Uh, yeah, yeah, so in 74, I would have been seven, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what was that like then? Well, too? I just remember, all, like people think that their children don't really know what's going on. They know exactly what's going on. And I probably was the sort of child who was, I was maybe a bit nervous and um, and I probably was extremely nosy so I spent a lot of time um, uh, uh, my mother would say juking around the doors and stuff to try and hear what, <laughs> what was going on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well it serves you well. Exactly. Yeah, you well. Well, that's it. Now Louisa spent the last few years writing but along with her two sisters and her mother she's also been dealing with cancer. It is a lot. It's sort of, it's like you weirdly get used to it or something. Like I had a... Uh, I, there's I had a, there's a word I introduced uh, us at home, inure. Inure. Yeah. Do you know that word? It's, I do, it's yeah. When you become used to something oh, yeah, terrible. Oh totally. yeah, totally. Yeah. That's it. Well, I think in a way you sort of do, but then sometimes you just stop and realise how weird it is. So um, I'm on a uh, WhatsApp with my two sisters and uh, one day my, uh, my sister, who's not well at the moment, oh, oh no, my sister, who is well, had been to see her oncologist because obviously she has to have checkups and said something about her oncologist and then my other sister said something about hers and then I said something about mine. <laughs> and then I'm like, this is completely, it's just weird. Like we're talking about it the way other people talk about it, like their hairdressers the or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah my, my oncologist, yeah, it's just so right. ridiculous. Like we just shouldn't probably shouldn't really all have oncologists and you're back in treatment I'm back in treatment yeah but I'm really lucky so I have um, um, I'm actually kind of embarrassed because I go on to a day ward in Galway every two weeks and um, I look as if I'm in completely rude health because I um, like I still have my hair and everything and um, like I haven't lost my appetite and stuff and um, uh, so I'm on immunotherapy I had a rough time really in sort of from Christmas and January and February but I feel okay now I mean it's just caused loads of crazy um, endocrine problems like my pituitary gland kind of exploded on Christmas Eve Uh, basically I had like a pint of Guinness in the afternoon I was thinking God I don't feel great and then it went on for about 12 days and then I went into hospital but yeah You're so blasé about it I know but sure, And then yeah. you, you managed to write a, a novel not just any old novel Well I didn't write the novel now after no, yeah. the, the, this time I wrote the novel after the first diagnosis yes, but not yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah Yeah Now that's quite impressive but back to the book and the main character called Kushla um, is, is it okay for me to admit that, that I fancy Kushla? The, the, that's the, totally is, fine. Is, is and that, people have told me that they fancy uh, Michael as well, so that's all right. all fine. Yeah, it's yeah, totally yeah. fine. Yeah, yeah, because I, I, I don't know why I fancy. <laughs> she's sort of she's <laughs> she's ballsy and funny and yeah, yeah. She can tell a good story. Yeah, she's good. Yeah, yeah, I hope she's good crack. All right. Yeah, she, yeah. I mean, she ends up in a bit of a mess, I suppose. But yeah. And it's when she meets Michael that the mess starts. One night, um, a, a man walks into, is that a cliche? Like a man walks into a bar, a stranger walks into a bar. So a man walks in one night and, um, yeah, I mean, he's probably um, fairly um, different from the sort of men that she's looking at in there every night who, who are, you know, sort of shipyard workers on their way home and stuff like that. And, um, uh, yeah, so she um, begins an affair. And this is at the core of the book. So at the heart of it, it's a, it's a love story mm-hmm. between uh, Kushla and Michael. Yeah. Um, and uh, really well written. Like, uh, no, no, I, I know, but that, that thing, that the infatuation and the unavailableness of it and the, the, all, all of this against the backdrop of a time where a Protestant and a Catholic shouldn't be mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. 
the sex scenes, for example. You yes. know, I, I just felt I, they, they were really well written. Yeah. Without being sort of voyeuristic or anything yeah. like that. They just really... And is that something that took a long time? Didn't didn't Sally Rooney say that she was she, she found the sex scenes in her last book very difficult? They are very difficult to write and you have to be kind of careful. I think the thing um, that you really can't do that some writers do is to say that sex is like, you know, that any part of sex is like something else because you're getting into like... <laughs> do you know what I mean? You're just getting... Oh, right, you can't do a, a, No, you can't. A metaphor or a similar Well, you know, what's that awful film, Showgirls, you know, with the dolphin kind of image in the pool and stuff. Do you ever see that? No. Anyway, so you just can't <laughs> right, be... Okay. You just have to be really careful about um, giving the reader any images that'll stick with them where it's a bit like, ooh, do you know what I mean? <laughs> right, so you okay. can't... I think you can't do that. And um, I don't know. I mean, I think that really what I was trying to do um, is that... Um, they shouldn't really be together. He knows it and she knows it. And there's a certain awkwardness as well. And they're both quite self-conscious. Like he's self-conscious because he's in his 50s and he's maybe not in the kind of shape that he'd like to be in. And um, I mean, she's... And also he's married. And then I suppose as well um, that she's, you know, um, sort of a Catholic girl. And she's not a, a virgin, but... Um, yeah, I mean, she's probably... Not as experienced she's probably, as him. Exactly, yeah. but she's probably doing things with somebody's husband that she thought that she wouldn't be doing. So there's that yeah. sort of awkwardness. And I guess I was trying to make it kind of realistic... Louise Kennedy with Ray and that doesn't quite bring us here but we'll go for the cheap link. Here is an uncharacteristically coy in an Ilona with Philip on the life cycle of the butterfly. They don't hang around or they don't even survive for too long. How long is their lifespan? Of a butterfly? Well, yeah. it depends. Like anything else, as long as a piece of string. The butterflies see to all the eating as a caterpillar. So you eat and eat and burst and eat and eat and burst. And you do this five times and then you go away from your food planting and never want to see it again. And you turn into an adult. And the adults have only one thing on their mind and it's not eating. So they have no tummies and they have no guts and they don't do poos. But but they can they can have a drink. They weren't entirely deprived. So this is why they're going to the flowers to get a, a drink of nectar and to, I suppose, meet other butterflies with a few to forming liaisons and um, as a consequence of that I suppose you could nearly call them singles bars or something <laughs> and then they go and lay the eggs. So it depends really on you know if you're a huge big butterfly from the Amazon you know like the Lamborghini of the butterfly world you use all your energy flying around in one day but I mean, if you're only a Morris Minor like our ones back here, your petrol could last you for, you know, a whole week. So how long is a butterfly? It depends on how much action it gets up to while it's around. If it's the weather's cold and it's sitting about not doing much flying, it might last two weeks. But the adult stage is purely for, for egg laying and that's what it does. With a view to forming liaisons, I don't think I've ever heard you being so delicate and so diplomatic. Um, <laughs> let's talk about... Now to public health policy. Do not touch that dial because it cropped up this week in a few very interesting and unexpected areas. On Tuesday, Ryan spoke to Professor of Psychiatry at Trinity College, Brendan Kelly, whose new book is called In Search of Madness, a psychiatrist's travels through the history of mental illness. And it was an illuminating listen. It's as far back as you can go. You find people concerned about madness and losing touch with reality, but always the impulse to care and to help has been coupled with um, custody, control and s- some pretty scary sounding treatments that were uh, implemented. Well, that's what I wanted to mention because the third C I'd add to care and custody is cruelty. Let's talk a little bit about the cruelty of, uh, of your of, yeah. that you came across. Well, I mean, what happened was in the 1800s, big asylums were built, large mental hospitals were built all over the world. And once you build a large institution, it will be immediately full of people. Societies and communities use institutions. So, for example, in Ireland, uh, for much of the history of the mental hospitals, 
you didn't need a medical certificate to be admitted. Uh, you didn't need a doctor's note. Um, so an asylum board could admit someone and discharge somebody. And you had uh, communities um, using the institution. So there was a phenomenon in Ireland called wintering in, where if a family had someone who might have been mentally ill, might have been intellectually disabled, or might have been just odd and eccentric, mm -hmm. um, would be put into the uh, mental hospital uh, for the winter and taken out in the autumn when they were needed on the farm again and then put back in again in the winter. So, so, so what you had was the social institutions being used by communities. Doctors became more involved as time went on and I wish I could say that we made an enormous difference when we became involved but we didn't really. Yeah. Um, you cannot stop societies using institutions and in Ireland we used so many institutions you know, uh, be it yes. a mother and baby homes, be it uh, industrial schools, Magdalene laundries. But interestingly, the Roman Catholic Church did not run our mental hospitals, which were the biggest institutions of all of these by a very long chalk. So the usual, the, the current narrative in Irish history, which is that we blame the Roman Catholic Church, and, and indeed it is blameworthy in many respects, uh, but, but we don't have that uh, for the largest institutions in our history, which were the mental hospitals. And the unpalatable truth? Many of these institutions were the economic engines of their towns. Did we cover ourselves in glory when it came to mental illness in the 20th century in Ireland? Well, you know, by the time the 20th century came around here in Ireland, we had about 20,000 people in our mental institutions, which is more per head of population than any other country in the world before or since. So from the get go, we were in a bad position. We had these huge institutions. Why so many? Like why per, per, per capita did you... Well, it certainly wasn't because of an epidemic of mental illness. It was because of an epidemic of mental hospitals. We just love building institutions and putting each other in them. Oh and, and we, <laughs> That's a very stark thing to say, yeah. But, but it's true. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we had some very bad mental health legislation as well, which we kept changing. Um, but we had this huge reliance on institutions. I mean, if you take the town of Balnaslow in 1940, mm -hmm. the town had a population of 5,300 people. And of the those 2,000 were patients in St. Bridget's. Really? So if you've that number of people, patients in the hospital, everyone else in the town either works in it, they supply it or they're in some way dependent upon it. So if you can imagine, Ryan, a local politician suggesting shutting down the hospital or scaling it down, they're going nowhere. It's, it's an economic powerhouse. The town is absolutely dependent upon it. So no one's going, you know, very few people have an interest in shutting it down or yeah. scaling it down. And while we might query the efficacy of some older treatments, some of the more unorthodox methods did actually work. We introduced something called malaria therapy in Grange Gorman in the 1920s that involved uh, importing mosquitoes and giving patients malaria in order to treat a condition um, uh, known as general paralysis of the insane or advanced syphilis. So uh, that, that took place in Ireland. And what, let's take that to the end. So the malaria does what to the patient? Or... Well, the patient has to develop malaria, has to get treated with quinine and recover from the malaria. And after that, it turns out that their mental illness, as it were, um, had improved. Um, this was known for some time. A physical illness could produce an improvement in a mental illness. And this malaria treatment treatment uh, was introduced in 1917 and the instigator of it won a Nobel Prize in 1927 for it and the most amazing part of this story Ryan is that it seems to have worked right. it seems it did reduce the death rate from advanced syphilis in the asylums so the history is a very complicated one and full of unexpected stories like that 
Oh, that is very interesting. That was Professor Brendan Kelly with Ryan. And more on public health. Rather unexpectedly, it must be said, when Arena got down and dirty with London in the 19th century. Ick. Super smelly. It was overcrowded. Uh, it was filthy. Uh, even if you were wealthy, there was no escape from the stink uh, because uh, there was, you know, for most people, there was no running water. Um, the, the, the flush toilet hadn't been popularised. Um, there were open cesspools. There were some sewers, but they were often open in the street and they were so badly designed, some of them went uphill. So the sewage didn't go anywhere. It just sat there in the street and rotted. And then, of course, there were trades. There was animal slaughtering uh, and heavy industry going on without any kind of protection uh, whatsoever. So the place stank. Um, and the, the the health belief of the time, and of course, some of this you know, was, was true, was that that stink was unhealthy. And they talked about miasma, miasma being a kind of noxious vapour or poisonous clouds that emanated from all this filth and carried disease. And of course, the key one that they were most afraid of, that they believed this miasma carried, was cholera. Lovely. I do apologise if you're having your breakfast. That is Colin Murphy with Kay. And his new play, Miasma, gets into the politics of sewage. Mm-hmm. And the logic went that if they chucked that smelly into the Thames, she'd be grand. Enter physician John Snow, who was not convinced. His expertise is ether, so he knows that the these vapours are inhaled into the lungs, whereas he knows from the devastation of cholera on the body that it's it's going through the bowel. So he says exactly. there has to be another source, and he believes the source is drinking water. Yes, so I mean, cholera is basically death by diarrhoea. It's absolutely horrendous. But the medical um, uh, consensus at the time, they have ways to explain why this thing that you breathe in is is uh, manifesting itself through the bowels and not through the lungs. And they talk about it, you know, thinning the blood. And, you know, it, it, it was science that we now know is completely bogus, but 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 they buy into it. Um, and uh, in the meantime, snow starts looking, literally looking for cholera in, 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 in water supplies that he suspects are tainted. And what he ends up doing is looking, being a, a pioneer of, of effectively of, data science and of epidemiology. He ends up abstracting from the individual patient, which is what all of his the medical establishment at the time is focused on, and looking at, at the notion of public health. But with public health comes public policy, and with public policy comes politicians. And that is where the drama comes in. My plays that normally are about about politics, you know, and and obviously the pandemic that we've experienced got me interested in the kind of politics of of, of public health. But when I started delving into this story, I realised that it's also a, a, a really interesting time in the evolution of political ideas. And like I consider myself broadly kind of a liberal, and these are the the kind of glory years, if you like, of early liberalism. But it's a liberalism that now looks utterly perverse and, and corrupted because they so strongly believe, I mean, at an actual moral level in the laissez-faire principle, and most notoriously as Irish people, that comes into play in the same years as 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 cholera is, is, is ravaging uh, Britain and, and Ireland in the Irish famine, um, when this idea that if you intervene, you'll do more harm than good. And similarly, when it comes to public health, the political establishment is sceptical of the notion of public health. They think it's kind of a, a lefty conceit uh, to, to, to create new interest groups uh, in doctors and 
charities and and, and reformers. Right. Um, and actually, you know, if you invest, yes. if you if you mandate that every landlord has yeah. to put a flush toilet in the house, you'll drive up rents, and it'll be worse off mm-hmm. for the poor. Colin Murphy on his play Miasma, as heard on Arena, and staying with matters WC. Just in case you're wondering, gut health experts Professor Barbara Ryan and Elaine McGowan joined Philip, who asked this, so we didn't have to. I'm trying, I'm struggling to phrase this question delicately, but it arises from the point that you make about fibre. And perhaps the best way of saying it is, what is the optimum amount of time between the food entering my body through my mouth and exiting at the other end? How, how many hours should it be and, and how many hours before I know that I'm, I'm in trouble, that it's going out too quickly or too slowly? Well, I slowly? think you know if it's in trouble when you dash to the loo. Yeah. I mean, there's a huge range. And when I, as doctors, we would, you know, we would see people all the time coming to us saying, oh, I'm, I'm constipated or I don't go often enough. And, and every, it varies from person to person but sort of a, as a as a um just a broad rule of thing, thumb rule of thumb would be some people might be normal normal for them to go once every 3 days and for some people it might be normal for them to go 3 times a day and men in general have faster gut transit than women you know more women would tend to be a little this bit sluggish this ladies is why we spend all of that time in the toilet <laughs> you should be in and out in no time <laughs> but there was a really interesting study um, last year um, in King's College and it was, they called it the blue poo study um, and they had people eating muffins with blue dye in them and then they looked to see when this blue dye came through in some people it was through in three hours in some people it took 10 days so there is a huge variation of gut transit but I mean ideally you know once every day or once every two days is fine but three times a day is also normal We'll leave that there. Good to know. But final word on all of this to gaff goddess Laura DeBarra who is really, 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 really into bathrooms and in particular cleaning shower trays the things people like these pink stains, what's that? What's oh my God, I love these. Yeah. So you'll hear me sound never more cork than when I pronounce this, but it actually is Seracia marcescens. <laughs> you would say Seracia marcescens, no less. That's what you so, have there. Yeah, we're okay. And she's not actually pink, if I was going to argue someone. She's more of a coral, but they call her pink mould because she is a type of mould, but she's not actually like a fungal-based mould. So basically, she's a waterborne bacteria that loves to live in damp places. And she's actually, I don't know if you've ever heard about the bloody polenta at breakout in Italy in the 1800s? No. Well, basically, all the polenta turn pink because of this bacteria. And also, you know, when they say statues are crying blood, it's also this bacteria. Uh-huh. So in your bathroom, that's why you see this pink. And I know that it can really kind of annoy a lot of people because it keeps coming back. So this is because your bathroom's too damp. So to get rid of it completely, air the bathroom afterwards, leave the door open 10 minutes, um, leave the extractor on. To actually tackle it there and then, again, vinegar, stunning, acidic, 50-50 vinegar water, and scrub it down. I'd use a non-scratch sponge. And then if you've got it on your ground, out, you just want to mix bicarbon water into a face mask consistency, apply it on as if it is a face mask on the grout and then scrub it off with an old toothbrush. Stunning. Okay. I'm on a high right now. No, so no. Listen, so <laughs> <laughs> the thoughts of everyone's bathroom gleaming. I'm dying. I love it. Something for the weekend. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Let's go to the races. Lord Larry at two with the last in front and he's a two to three length advantage. Lost Ronald Pump at the last and up towards the line. Would you believe it? For the second year in succession for the 150th Boy Sports Irish National, Dermot McLaughlin has done it again. Lord Lariat and Paddy O'Hanlon beat front of the salt, toast third between Guyer to Maneil, screaming colours early doors. 
I feel wrecked after all that. The horse, as you heard, Lord Lariat. The jockey, Paddy O'Hanlon. The odds were 40 to 1, and it was an historic back to back win of the Grand National for Meath trainer Dermot McLaughlin. Here he is with Damien O'Mara on Morning Ireland, and Loki might best describe his reaction. People who are into racing will know your father won the race back in, in 1962. Your family has mm. a large association with the Drapers who effectively owned the National through the 70s and the 80s. You're now the first man in 46 years to win it back to back. Can you put your finger on what it is that has linked you and what is the most famous race in the country to the extent that you are? I don't know. Look, we've been lucky with some nice horses. So that's a help and the stay in chases I, I, I I really like enjoying uh, training them horses. You know what I mean? The horses that need three mile plus. We we're lucky to have a few there now. Free Will and Dylan obviously ran well last week in the English National and this fella yesterday. So uh, it's just it's grand to have them. I mean, you know that we're lucky to have them too. But uh, I don't know. People have asked me that question already, but we don't do any different with anyone else. So, so we're just lucky to have them, I suppose. That is fierce modest. It was Ed Sheeran time on Tuesday's Drive Time and some might say it was Ed Sheeran time all week, like it or not. Ed Sheeran die hard. He couldn't have been any happier if Kerry had won the All-Ireland. He skipped out of the office to go into the city centre to join uh, more Ed Sheeran fans. Barry Lenehan, where are you? Yes, bad habits can often lead one to Camden Street at half two in the morning, Damien. But uh, instead, they've been queuing here since half two this morning in Camden Street to see the bad habits star. Ed Sheeran frenzy sweeping across Ireland, sweeping across the island, as we know. And it's starting here in the next few minutes here at Whelan's uh, venue here, just off Camden Street, across from Ryan's Bar and Flannery's as well. Many hostelries that you all know so well. Barry going the extra mile for the national broadcaster and he spoke to these fans who'd been queuing outside Whelan's. What is it about Ed Sheeran that, that really has you here all these hours? I don't know, I just love his music. I've been following for him for 10 years. So far still going. Just follow him around the world when I can. He's such a brilliant songwriter and he's just like, his shows are amazing as well. So it's just, it's just really a pleasure to watch him, honestly. Like, he's just so good at everything. <laughs> his shows are unbelievable, but I think there's yeah. a lot to be said about his fans and about the friendships yeah. that are formed so in Q. How do you all, all know each other? Is it, is it through? From queuing <laughs> in Ipswich last year and we met each other and we were just so excited to be together again and see him again. I mean, there's a big part of him that we come to see in his music but we share that love for him and it brings us together and it's just great. And Barry brought us this from Fitzgerald's Bar in Sandy Cove in South Dublin where the 31 year old Sheeran had not only had a pint of Guinness he had in time honoured tourist fashion pulled one. The, the whole pub was kind of starstruck and just in disbelief for about the first 10 minutes so you know he was able to kind of sit down and enjoy his enjoy his point with his mate for a few minutes but then uh you know, he he caught that everyone was that everyone was kind of recognising him. So, you know, in fairness to him, he got up himself and went around to everyone and went around to the tables and introducing himself and posing for a few photos with people and the fans and stuff like that. You know, just just a really really sound guy. A really, really sound guy. And if you like your rock stars mean and scowling in leather as they toss televisions out of hotel bedrooms, yeah, Sheeran is not your man. I suppose whatever you think of his music, uh, and I say this grudgingly, he's he's hard not to like, isn't he? 
he really is very pleasant. I've interviewed him a couple of times at this stage and he's always kind of very obliging and quite down to earth, you know. And it really is extraordinary when you think about it. He does these massive stadium shows with just really himself and the guitar and some technology, you know. When you think about bands to bring on, you know, massive backing singers and other acts, and that's fine, that works really well too, but it's essentially just him and a guitar. Sinead Crowley and Justin McCarthy on Morning Ireland. But back to that Whelan's gig because the Ray Darcy show teams Ashling and Connor had managed to get into it. And if we're wondering why we have Ed Sheeran, it's down to Damien Rice. This venue is the, uh, the venue where I realised that I wanted to, um, to be a singer-songwriter. I came to watch Damien Rice here with my, with my cousin, uh, with my cousin Laura. What I loved about it is it was... Uh, um, uh, like a kids only show and if adults wanted to come they had to be accompanied by a kid basically so like my dad wouldn't have been allowed in unless unless we brought him in yeah so I came to that Damien Rice show and then like from that day I was like I sort of got an acoustic guitar and just started writing so this venue is super 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 special to me super 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 special he's a super nice guy is he is he really as nice as he seems I, I look I wasn't going into it a super fan but I certainly was walking away one because yeah he really just you know brought everyone in if, because it was an intimate venue it felt like you know you were in his living room and you were just experiencing a set list that he wanted to play these were songs that he obviously decided that look whatever was coming into his head no loop pedal by the way Ray right yeah so it was a fully live experience and I'm was, fascinated by his loop pedal so just him and his guitar just him and his guitar yeah it was lovely to be back gigging. On Bowman on Sunday, archive from Scrap Saturday to celebrate what would have been the 70th birthday of Dermot Morgan. It's the caricature, I think. I just, you know, in uh, in respect to yourself and, and certain other... I get onto sort of, you know, some of the notes and those are the dominant notes and I don't sometimes even bother going particularly to the rest of the uh, uh, scale, as it were, you know, in, in, the, in the impressions. So, so like I, you did that, yeah. yeah. It's the high part of your... Um, the high part of your of your range, as it were, that I, that I tend to feature, and the same way that Michael D. Higgins, for example, who has now started to speak in a very much more modulated way, sometimes loses the run of it and goes up there. <laughs> and that's and that's what I tend to, you know, and it's like a bit like Martin Turner with the cartoons, you know, he he, he just accentuates certain features, and he's not really bothered about the rest. You know? Now, one person who was not exactly thrilled at being taken off was Eamon Dunphy. I wonder why. Now, Eamon, you would appear to have, if you will forgive the unintended pun, got yourself into deep water over your attack on fungi. Yes, the so-called dingle dolphin. An unpopular move? Yes, of course it is. It's always unpopular when you uh, attack this sort of thing. You see, people don't like to be told that the emperor has no clothes. They've been fed a diet of tabloid drivel about dingy the dolphin. Fungi, the dolphin thing. Yeah, whatever whatever it's called. Yeah, we've been told that here is an an intelligent life force, a a mammal, etc. The truth is rather different. Now, Eamon, it has been scientifically proven that dolphins are no, very intelligent the, the, indeed. No, my point I is mean, that the Joe Soaps and the Decent Skins have 
have told us and would have us believe that fungi is the real thing, the genuine article. But the truth is that fungi is not a great mammal. Now, if firstly, we could pull you up on that. Firstly, no. Firstly, he's a sleight of hand merchant. He's a, he is basically a cheap, nasty contract. He is the Paul Gascoigne of the marine world. He has a few tricks, such as nuzzling your belly and hanging out with fishermen. He is for tourists. He is shadow uh, and not substance. These this are very point. serious charges. Uh, now, can you substantiate any of these? They are serious charges. Yes, they are serious charges. If you ask Mick O'Dwyer, great manager, if fungi, the high-flying fungi, ever entered his calculations, you will be greeted by a resounding no. He was never considered for his club. He was never considered for county honours either. When the going got tough against Brian Mullins or Colm O'Rourke, where was fungi? Question. Question. Well, now, could we? No, question. The truth, the unpalatable truth, oh wait, the truth is that when it comes to real championship football, fungi is doing exhibition stuff for boatloads of tourists, doing sweet uh, FA or FAI, if you like, and the rest of the Kerry lads know this. But Eamon, it is proof no, that he is a good boost no. to the southwest in terms of tourism. Uh, no, I don't no, think no, that you that's, can that's, deny that's, that. That's, that is, that's total nonsense. If Fungi is such a great dolphin, how come he has never been offered a series on TV? Unlike Flipper. Flipper was a great dolphin, a truly great dolphin, who had better dorsal fins, a better snout, and much better weather. When well, Flipper, made, those who had... Flipper made those noises. He made it, <coughs> which was particularly good. I like that. That, that is that a that sea credibility. Lion, no, it's no, a I, no sea I disagree. Lion. No, it is no, not no. Fungi is a charlatan. Even Skippy. Skippy. Skippy S was a marsupial. Yeah, but he had more cred. He had more beauty and far better noise. He used to do those interesting sort of. Ones than my friend Fungi. So, so others may pine for Fungi, not yours truly. Flipper friendly, yes. Fungi friendly, forget it. I'll have tuna and heavy on the Fungi, Harry. Rejected by Mikko, rejected by the Kerry County Board. The only one who wouldn't, who shouldn't reject him, is John West. Oh, poor Fungi. But if you are going to do some mocking satire, you yourself can expect some backlash. Here's how Mike Murphy put it. And what about if people say things about yeah. you? What, what's yeah. those, I'm I, sure, no, I'm I mean, sure I'd bleed just as easily, yeah. Yeah, but do yeah. you? What, what? I'm sure I do. I don't, I mean, I suppose I'm in the position where I, where I get, you know, I'm relatively unscathed, right? But um, I'm just, I mean, I have had terrible things said about me. You know, I've had newspaper articles where they weren't necessary. In fact, by and large, the press have been very uh, uh, helpful and supportive. But yeah. I've had the odd really... Um, and how do, what way does hurtful. it affect you? It is very hurtful. I remember I was, uh, I remember one particularly nasty profile and, you know, you do, God, gee, and it, it kind of knocks a hole in your day. There's no question about it. But you get over it and get on with it. It's not like a professional footballer yeah. now. At the end of the day, you get up and play another game. But it is. I. But the intention is not to wound. That's pretty is important. Is it not? Oh, no, no, you see, I know. this is the point. No. I mean, even... I so don't think that's disingenuous. I think that's that's real. That it's not to wound. No. I, no, I even mean, if you are picking on the foibles, the weaknesses, all of those things... Uh, certainly, I would have to say in my conscious mind, I've never set out to, to wound anybody. But uh, sometimes I've really gone to stir it. From Bowman on Sunday... Bringing us here. What's up, guys? Uh, it's me. Welcome to the Leo Lens. This is Leo's podcast equivalent of throwing another sod of turf on the fire. Ah, the sweet smell of killer air pollution. Oh, good to see you again, Pascal. Stop trying to smile, Cotiche. It doesn't work. It makes you look like I want to Will Smith somebody. Leave the dimpling to me. Uh, look, I I'm totes chillaxed, and why wouldn't I be? Oh? I've been doing my disappearing thing where nobody notices. Oh, I thought you vanished from view because me, Hall and Mary Lou are both way more popular than you now. Well, you know, I don't put much stock in a Opinion polls. <laughs> well, it's all the opinion polls this time, even the ones that are usually nice to you, like Red Sea. And some media are even talking up the possibility of Mihal as president. <coughs> Sorry. Are you okay? What the actual? 
He's got about as much charisma as an old foot and mouth mat left on a hedge. How is this possible? Mainly by standing next to you and looking great by comparison. Excuse me? Like on a dating site when someone uses a photo of them standing next to a complete minger. Sorry, what? The party's getting tetchy, Cotiche. Tiche. Your return as Tishuk looks like it'll be about as welcome as a Westlife reunion tour. Well, um, 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 uh, <laughs> what evs? I mean, I wouldn't be interested in becoming the president anyway, crusty old institution. Oh, what do you think you'll do after the heave? Uh, I mean, after you leave, assuming you're not doing time, that is. Oh, some UN, EU thing. I'm going to play up to my skills. Ah. You know, anything that pays loads of money where there's no work to be done and there's lots of media profiles so I can keep coming back on TV making digs about the povs. So nothing new. Anyway, that's um, that's enough for today. Looks like it's enough smiling for today as well. You're back frowning. Well done, Colin. I'm not frowning. It's a smile. Uh, it looks a lot like a frown today. I'm not frowning. It's resting rich face. Oh, oh. Bye-bye, everybody. That's it from this week's playback. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week.